Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be uh, talking about the importance of free speech and press. And we're really building on a conversation that we had recently with Molly Hemingway, a Fox News contributor and senior editor at The Federalist. Uh, Molly raised some really important questions about the meaning of freedom of the press in contemporary society. And we thought such good questions that we wanted to enlist an old friend of ours and a noted scholar on questions of free speech and press to help us understand those questions more fully and perhaps even try to answer them. And we're, so I'm so happy to be, today to be joined by Professor Joe Fornieri. Uh, Joe is Professor of Political Science at Rochester Institute of Technology in New York. He is the director of the Center uh, of Statesmanship, Law and Liberty and a prolific author. Uh, he has won a wonderful book on Abraham Lincoln called Abraham Lincoln, Philosopher Statesman. And he's got a forthcoming volume on American, called American Statesmanship, Principles and Practices of Leadership coming out with University of Notre Dame Press. So Joe is engaged in and has been engaged in his scholarly career in thinking about the principles of America and the American idea itself and what it means for freedom of speech and freedom of press. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, my my latest book uh, released by uh, by uh, Ashbrook was is precisely on that topic, uh, free speech, <laughs> free speech and free press. And, and thank you so much for that generous and kind introduction. I'm looking forward to being here. Well, good. I sh yeah, we shouldn't neglect that core document volume, right? Mm -hmm. uh, free speech, which you've edited, uh, some great documents in there from the course of American history, law and politics, uh, really defining documents on the meaning of free speech and press. Thanks so much for putting that together for us. Well, you know, that was uh, 22 years of, of teaching and, and editing and uh, writing an expert. So I hope it's pedagogically, it's, it's useful. Uh, for my students and for the general public. So Joe, today, um, freedom of speech and press is back on people's minds again. We see it all over the place. People talking about cancel culture, people are talking about the appropriate limits of the media, media's responsibility, the question of big technology companies. Those are the, some of the questions that we engaged in a discussion with Molly Hemingway about. Let me Let me take it back a little bit and ask you, in about the historical relationship between journalism and politics. What does that, in your mind, what does that tell us about today's contentious climate? Uh, certainly uh, the contention is, is nothing new, right? If we look back uh, at, uh, in the early Republic and the debate over the Alien and Sedition Acts, but we can go right back to the, the colonial era where certainly the uh, a free press uh, was was one of the swords really uh, for liberty that that uh, spread the the uh, word of and ideals of the revolution. Um, the British law uh, at the time 
was was quite restrictive. Uh, although William Blackstone in his commentaries on the law of England, a work which greatly uh, influenced uh, our founders, uh, did uh, understand freedom of press as no prior restraint. He did so in those exclusive terms. In other words, uh, uh, at the time of of the colonies, and even in our in the early republic, um, you could not. The the general principle was um, government could not restrain you from printing something. However, you could be prosecuted afterwards, subsequently for for uh, what was known as seditious libel, the law of seditious libel, quite uh, repressive, and this was. Uh, a remnant of the British common law. Uh, it, it's, it seems counterintuitive intuitive, uh, for us today that, you know, geez, if I, uh, I have the right to say something, but I'm going to be punished <laughs> for, for uh, what I say afterwards. And seditious libel involved any speech, spoken or written word, um, that disparaged government. It was, think of it kind of as a defamation of uh, governmental authority. Now, what's what's interesting is that um, the American experience had uh, we could see kind of seeds, uh, early seeds, uh, towards a more robust understanding of free speech and free press as early as 1735, in what was known as the Peter Zenger trial. Um, Zenger was a publisher for um, the New York Weekly. Right, New York's always in the center of uh, of, of, of news. It, it always seems like the New York uh, like, yeah. <laughs> So, and he criticized uh, the governor general. He was charged with seditious libel uh, at the time. It's very interesting that the, one of the key questions was whether or not truth may serve as a defense. So the judge, um, traditionally, if it was a case of uh, seditious libel, it didn't it didn't matter if what you said was true. Right. If if the accusations or the, the criticisms you're making of government were true, you nonetheless could be prosecuted under seditious libel because you're tarnishing the reputation of of the, the authority. Um, so what uh, what happened in this case is the colonial jury here uh, accepted truth as a standard. What Zenger had said was true. And so they nullified the uh, uh, judge's in instructions in, in return a not guilty verdict. And that was a, a very early uh, colonial precedent uh, in defense of, of broader protection for free speech. Of course, the, we look at the, the, the Virginia Bill of Rights and, and a lot of the Bill of Rights during the time of the founding, and all of them make this connection between speech and press and self-government, right? Um, the full the, the uh, um, yeah I mean I was actually thinking about that as you were talking there because you get this development so we start to break from the British tradition which and I think it's fair to say right the British themselves viewed their understanding of free press as more enlightened and more liberal than anybody else's because at least you got to say it but as you say you got yes. to say it but then you could get punished but right, then the I mean, Americans added. But if you're, if it's true, you can't be punished for what you said. Correct. But then, but then we get to, look, as you said, contention has been part of American politics since pretty much the beginning. And 
we get into the 1790s, and I'm thinking about what you said there, this new American idea of freedom of speech and press, which is more open and more robust than the British tradition out of which it's coming. I'm thinking of one of the most, the, the early sort of crisis over freedom of speech and press with the Alien and Sedition Acts. Tell That's us right. about that. Tell us about that moment, because that does seem to me, to me, a really important moment for understanding the legal and political meaning of freedom of speech and press. Right. Le legitimate opposition and the peaceful transition of government had not been fully established, right? This is before the revolution of, uh, of, of 1800. And, and, and when Jefferson becomes president, he seeks to heal the wounds of the country by saying, we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans. Well, at this time, each side is accusing the other of, of seeking to, to uh, undermine the core principles of, of the regime. The, Jeff, the uh, Republicans, Jeffersonian Republicans accused the Federalists of being monocrats and uh, the Federalists led by Hamilton um, and, and Adams are accusing the, the Republicans of being, uh, you know, revolutionaries, uh, radical revolutionaries as in France. And, uh, you know, at this time, the French Revolution is, is raging. You have French foreign immigrants coming to the United States. Many of them are um, uh, joining Jefferson's Republican Party. Um, the Federalists are concerned that this is going to create a third column. Of course, part of the part of the concern was immigration uh, as well and the loyalty uh, of these groups coming to the United States. So they enacted um, a, a series of repressive laws that were very consistent with, again, the British view, as we mentioned a moment ago, uh, of seditious libel. If anyone shall write, print, utter, or publish false, scandalous, and malicious writings against the government of the United States, they can be uh, punished. <clears throat> And uh, the, the Federalists, in enacting this, claimed that they were acting very consistent with William Blackstone, that this was not a matter of prior restraint. Nonetheless, you could be punished uh, after the fact for defaming the government through, through group libel. So, um, so, so just so I'm clear about this, Joe, the Federalists didn't think, they weren't saying, oh yeah, there's freedom of speech and press but we just need to pass this law and violate it because we're in some kind of emergency or dire situation. No, they, they thought, they, no, to, to interrupt, they, they thought that this was consistent with the First Amendment, right? The, the, the boundaries of the First Amendment were not clearly defined yet, and this was a test case. And in some ways, it was disappointing because most of the debate over the Alien and Sedition Acts centered over the principle of federalism. Let me give you an example. Um, many, of the, many of the Republicans uh, agreed with the principle of um, seditious libel, but they argued it was for the states to regulate, not the federal government. The problem was that the federal government had overreached. Seditious libel should be regulated by the states. So you don't find uh, the, 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 the very broad view in defense of free speech uh, that the court would later articulate. Now there are some, uh, there are some good, you know, important developments here. James Madison, I think, is 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 in the forefront in in defending a broader view uh, of speech. Of course, the uh, the Republican Jefferson and Madison uh, post the uh, uh, the Kentucky and Virginia uh, Virginia resolutions in seventeen. Uh, 98, and there is some mention there of, of free speech. But 
uh, it is somewhat disappointing that most of the debate centers around federalism and, and the authority, the, the debate over federal versus state authority, uh, rather than a very expansive, deeper philosophical defense of free speech. Well, to um, the extent that James Madison talked about free speech and said the, the, this Sedition Act violates free speech, can you give us a sense of what Madison's, you, you said it was a broader view. Yeah. What broader I, view of free speech was? Yeah, I, Madison believed that the First Amendment went beyond uh, prior restraint. And, and he seemed to have been, he seemed to, to be rejecting or was rejecting the, the more repressive uh, view of, of group libel, of seditious, I'm sorry, of seditious libel. Group libel is another another thing, another thing we should we should talk about. Right. So Madison, oh, Madison thought that Madison's you should. A visionary, Madison right? thought you should have the right to speak or publish your thoughts, and you shouldn't be the federal government at least should not be able to punish you for what you speak or print. Yeah. He he again. It, it was a, a broader view of the First Amendment that was articulated, but the Federalists, of course subscribe to this to this narrow view of the first amendment of free speech and press as simply being no prior restraint but if you will you can be punished uh for for what you say afterwards in terms of seditious libel am i right to say that the law made um allowance for the truth of what you said so it followed that well that that's a good point that was that was debated too and i don't think it was fully resolved the question of truth is a truth is a defense. Yeah, that question comes up whether or not truth is a defense. Now, I mean, one of the, the there's there's a lot of colorful uh, episodes here. Matthew the spitting lion um, uh, is is uh, he, he actually had spit in the face of Roger Griswold of of Connecticut uh, in Congress, and this led to uh, a brawl. Uh, in, in the house where Griswold took things into his own hands and, and, and sought to beat Lyon with a hickory stick. But Brian was indicted for um, uh, accusing the uh, Adams administration of fostering, quote, ridiculous pomp, foolish adulation, and selfish avarice. Uh, he was sent to prison for four months and fined about $1,000, but he was uh, reelected from prison. Uh, wow. So you're telling me that someone in early America under the Sedition Act was arrested, tried, found guilty, and put in jail for four months for saying that John Adams was ridiculous and pompous? Yes. Foolish adulation and selfish uh, uh, avarice. Yeah. Wow. Well, what happened? What happened to the Sedition Act? Well, it it lapsed and of course the fines these fines were repaid as a symbolic gesture jefferson and jefferson did not um, um renew it of course but there's a lot of telltale lessons one is that the you know all the judges on the court at this time were federalists so they supported this narrow interpretation of free speech furthermore we need to keep in mind judicial review um was was not exercised by the court until or established until 1803 this is 1798 okay so um and the sedition act i think one of the morals of the story is it clearly was used for partisan purposes by the federalists to destroy the republican party right as a, as a tool of censorship um federalist judges 
um, uh, were, were unanimous, uh, again, in upholding the Sedition Act, as we mentioned, and only uh, Republicans were targeted. <laughs> only members of the opposition party uh, were, were, were targeted by this. Uh, uh, so we have, so this, we have what looks like an obviously partisan attempt to use the power of government to shut down the political speech and press uh, of another side. As you say, this the the Sedition Act lapses. Jefferson, I think, and pardons a lot of people who have yeah. been, or all of them who have been convicted under the Sedition Act. Um, what's the what's the rest of the 19th century look like in America? As a result of the Sedition Acts, do we have the birth of a more robust understanding of free speech, or is it still under debate throughout the rest of the 19th century? I would say it's still it's still evolving because the 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 court's First Amendment jurisprudence, for a number of reasons, um, doesn't begin to develop until the early 20th century. Okay, with with cases involving. Uh, the Espionage Acts and and state uh, criminal anarchy and criminal syndicalism laws. Right. One of the reasons for this, one of the reasons for this is that is that um, uh, you know uh, the, the institution of federalism. America, the, the states are still vested at this time, right up into the 20th century, with a great deal of authority, and the court, uh, in regard to this, excess, uh, exercises a great deal of restraint. But in 1925. The, the court in Gitlow versus New York incorporates the First Amendment, okay, and applies it to the states. And this now empowers, this now empowers federal courts to review state laws and to overturn them, okay. Uh, so this is an awesome power which, which changes, uh, begins to change the game. Okay, so let's take us to, you know, right before that moment, let's say the 1920s in America, you said the beginning of the 20th century, and obviously, we've got the advent of broadcast media, we've got radio that's coming into being, not, you know, a couple decades from then, there'll be television, and of course, it'll go on and on in the 21st century into digital media, but in the 1920s, or where we're sitting right there at the beginning of the 20th century, just give us, broadly speaking, for our listeners, what kind of things can Americans say and print or not say and print under the First Amendment? Good point. Um, good question. The, let's, let's start with uh, World War I is, is kind of the, the precursor to the, to the 20s. And civil libertarians say uh, great scholars like, like Jeff Stone um, and, and others uh, say that the World War One and its aftermath was was actually the most uh, repressive period in American history for free speech. And the government, uh, the Wilson administration, had passed um, the Espionage Act, which was uh, punished uh, efforts to uh, obstruct the recruitment and, and enlistment of the draft. The problem with this is it defined obstruction very uh, broadly and impinged upon speech. And it also uh, passed an amendment to the Espionage Act in 19, um, uh, 1918, known as the Sedition Act, which resembled the language of the Alien and Sedition Acts we just mentioned in the early Republic of 1798. So, wow. so Wilson, Woodrow Wilson revived the federal, sort of revived the Federalist Law of Sedition back from the early Republic. 
Get me saying it a little too strongly, but I, I think in essence that's correct. That that, it, that this this was very uh, this the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act uh, were extremely repressive, and their language resembled uh, um, the. What happened? The, under, so what happened under the Sedition Act? Well, one of the great cases, and we talk about media involved uh, a radical uh, publication um, considered radical at that time called the Masses. And um, this never went to the Supreme Court itself. It was it was decided at a, at a lower level, the lower level federal court. Um, but uh, this was a the 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 uh, magazine had an illustration um, uh, of of women and uh, of a woman and a person over the mouth of a cannon, and it was entitled conscription. Um, and and so it it you know think think of um, Pablo Picasso's Guernica, you know, with something comparable to that, an illustration revealing the horrors of war. There was a there was a grieving mother holding her 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 child or dead child, and this was um, censored under the Espionage Act, and uh, it led to uh, uh, an important test of free speech. And the kind of unsung hero in this case was someone by the interesting name of Justice Learned Hand, Learned Hand. And he, he developed what was known as a, a direct incitement test uh, to, to protect speech, to try and narrow the, uh, the language of the, the Espionage Act to provide uh, broader protection and define clear boundaries of speech. Um, then in 19, uh, the same year, you have Oliver Wendell Holmes, who becomes one of the great champions, him and, and Justice Brandeis, probably one of my favorite justice, I have to admit, in regard to free speech. Um, uh, becomes a great champion of free speech. He coins clear and present danger that the, the marketplace of ideas metaphor, uh, yelling uh, fire in a crowded theater. And in Sheck versus the United States, he devises the, uh, uh, the clear and present danger test. But what's interesting is that test actually he use, is used to convict the uh, the defendant who mailed leaflets to men of draft age, uh, uh, claiming that the draft was tantamount to uh, slavery and violated the Thirteenth Amendment. He was prosecuted for that. What he did later on in seceding cases, and they think that this was a result of his conversation with Learned Hand, who I mentioned, the federal court uh, judge Zechariah Chafee from an intellectual, uh, a scholar of the First Amendment at Harvard, that through his conversations uh, with these uh, uh, civil libertarians, Holmes' position evolved and he began to use the clear and present danger test to, uh, to protect speech. He broadened it. And of course, uh, Justice Brandeis uh, sides with him and they become known in American history as the great dissenters. And these, these cases from the 1920s, let's say uh, Abrams and, and Gitlow and Whitney versus California, I think it includes one of the greatest defenses of free speech and, and free press in American history, uh, really uh, plant the seeds of the court's future jurisprudence when we look at them. And so what happens over the course of the 20th century, it seems like you're saying is 
this this broader view of free speech that you should and and press, which is you should be able to speak what you're thinking, particularly about political issues. You should be able to publish those thoughts, and you shouldn't be able to be punished for them. What about this idea of whether or not they're true? Does that still is that still part of uh, free speech and press in the 20th century, or? can people start publishing things, particularly when they're talking about public officials that are, that might be false as well? Well, this gets into the question of, of libel, right? Which is a kind of defamation and um, uh, whether or not, let's say public officials in the, in the very important case of times versus Sullivan, 1964 can uh, sue their critics. Uh, if their critics make false statements. And this is what occurred in, in, in that this famous at once a civil rights case and First Amendment case, Times versus Sullivan, where the Southern Christian Leadership Conference placed a uh, advertisement in support of civil rights in uh, in the New York Times. And there were some false uh, statements. And uh, therefore, Sullivan, uh, at this time, who was an Alabama official, sued and won in the Alabama court. But the the Supreme Court uh, overturned this and created a very high standard for winning libel cases against public officials, thereby uh, protecting some false statements. And of course, as we know, that, t- that test uh, is, is known as the actual malice test. Now, in, in a case of 1974, another uh, freedom of uh, press case, Gertz versus Walsh, the court goes so far as to say that, that uh, under the First Amendment, there is no such thing as a false idea. However, however, in that case, Gertz versus Walsh, um, the the court um, uh, allows sides with a, a lawyer, okay, Gertz, uh, who um, uh, who uh, uh, was was defending himself uh, against defamatory charges. Okay, he was he was uh, you know claimed to be an instrument of communism by by Walsh, a member of the John Birch Society. And uh, the, the court said that because Gertz, a lawyer, was a private individual, the very high standard of actual malice did not uh, apply to him. He could recover uh, uh, damages for civil damages for libel. So, so the court yeah. has, yeah, they have this, this distinction between public officials, um, uh, the highest uh, the highest libel protection uh, involves, you know, protecting you if you criticize public officials. Below that, public figures, as was in the case of Hustler versus Falwell. Remember that 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 case with Jerry Falwell on the moral majority. Uh, Falwell was viewed as a, although he wasn't a public official who who held office, he was considered a public figure because he was in the limelight politically, and therefore the actual malice. He had to prove actual malice. Uh, against his critics to win the libel suit. And then, of course, Gertz versus Welch, a lower standard of uh, uh, involving uh, the defamation of private individuals. So by the time we get to the 20th century, it sounds like what you're saying is 
a much more robust understanding of free speech and press has developed in America. And so that political speech is, I think the phrase is robust, uninhibited and wide open. That it's that you can say what you think about public figures and they can even contain some factual errors that unless you're being actually malicious and trying to destroy them on purpose, which is hard to prove, right. that you can say those things, you can print those things and not be punished. And, and this, this extends pretty far so that we have a, a more robust understanding in law and politics, certainly yes. of freedom of speech and of the press. But I'm thinking now about the 21st century and right. the, right. the, the place of, of free speech and press in the digital age. How does the, uh, the coming of the internet affect free speech and press? I think I think it's been revolutionary. Although that that's you know certainly a cliche, um, it's vastly expanded the marketplace of ideas. But some have claimed that the marketplace of ideas has descended into a bullring, and and that the the concerns as as the court has broadened uh, speech to include expression and symbolic expression and sexual expression and offensive speech and. Uh, symbolic acts of flag burning and even uh, protesting at uh, a Marine's funeral, that this has led to the coarsening. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this, but I think it's an important argument to consider that, that it's led to a, a coarsening of, of, of society and that, that um, uh, civility has, has broken down and now there's now there's we find efforts to 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 try and curtail speech and the, the argument has been that speech needs to be counterbalanced against other norms or other values like equal dignity uh, and therefore in the name of e- equal dignity in which marginalized uh, groups have uh, suffered disproportionately and and uh, are prevented from speaking freely due to intimidation and the abuse of free speech, um, uh, we, we need to curtail, let's say, uh, offensive, racist, sexist language. And so, let me uh, ask you this, though. Based on the law, at least, is that kind of offensive um, speech and press, even in the digital age, is that protected under the First Amendment? Yes, it is. It is, it is protected, and it, it's important to clarify, uh, let's put it this way, um, the court has not carved out an exception for hate speech, right? One of the core principles of the First Amendment is that offensive, disturbing um, uh, speech uh, is protected, right? That as Justice Holmes says, if, if the First Amendment means anything, it means freedom of, of thought that that we hate uh, and that there's a danger in that uh, if we give government uh, sensorial powers to restrict so-called offensive speech, it'll simply restrict speech that it, that it finds disagreeable or, or in opposition to orthodox ideology. Um, well, that leads so, me though to this thought though, Joe, yeah. let's apply that to the time we're living in right now. Um, there are people who say, that in this digital age, um, social media companies, big tech, like Twitter, um, they will take a speaker off if, they, if that speaker has violated their terms uh, of use in which they will include things like 
hateful speech or racist speech, that sort of thing. Yes. The con con contemporary controversy is, do these principles of law that have a uh, freedom of speech and of the press, do they also apply? They apply against government. Government can't stop that speech. But do they also apply against big me social media companies like Twitter? Where does that stand today? No, that, that's the rub right there. And um, I, I just want to clarify that, that although hate speech is protected, it's not absolutely protected. That under context, certain expressions of hate speech, uh, let's say if they, if they constituted under, let's say, an emergency principle, a direct incitement to imminent lawless action, or let's say they deliver a true threat uh, that a reasonable person would would conclude that that uh, your life and limb are in jeopardy. It can be restricted, but but context is is all important here. Now, the the other question uh, that you said is can can these these big tech platforms be restricted under the First Amendment? My answer is is, is simple: no, they can't. As uh, uh, as is the case today. There's efforts to um, there's efforts to uh, to regulate uh, the big tech giants. You know, some claim that they they, they exercise vast uh, you know power over our communications network. Right, that most of our social and political uh, discourse now occurs within social media. Also, social media some claim has has you know led to a certain decline in civility where. Um, you know, you know, one can kind of join part of an electronic mob to intimidate someone, to bully someone. What we uh, people call the cancel culture. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 concerns with this, and so I think our my, our question is, you know, are the regulatory proposals a cure worse than the disease, right? So you have you have the right who argues that <clears throat> these social media companies um, are biased. And, and that they, they constitute uh, a monopoly, uh, therefore impeding the marketplace of ideas. And on the other hand, you have the left calling for greater, uh, dissatisfied calling for greater censorship of, of misinformation and things like hate speech. So it, both sides, I think, want to, want to uh, revisit um, the, the regulation of, uh, of the internet and of course, the, one of the, the main provisions is uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, that's that's what has been in you know constantly been in the news, and what it what it did is what this this section did. It was framed in in, in uh, 1996 when the the internet was um, um, uh, just beginning to develop fully that it allowed these uh, it allowed the the hosts uh, to post contact co to post content in which they would not be uh, responsible for libel. In other words, uh, the, the the host can post this content, but the user would be responsible for the libel. Okay, and and the, so the platforms weren't uh, liable for what users posted, uh, in the content uh, in the content, and that that differed from other forms of media where uh, you could be held liable, right? And so it would make people more circumspect 
Also, and, and this is what's jarred uh, Republicans as well, that uh, they had they have under the Communications Decency Act the freedom to moderate, regulate content as they see fit in accordance with good faith um, examples. So it is it is something of a, a conundrum that, uh, you know, Republicans, again, uh, see that these you know, these mass media companies are deplatforming uh, uh, Republican uh, speakers, uh, that, that, they're, that they're engaging in monopolistic practices. Democrats, on the other hand, are claiming again that, that um, there's too much misinformation swirling about the, the internet. There's, there's uh, hate speech, which is inciting individuals um, and, and uh, you know, culminating in, 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 in riots uh, and, and other violent acts. And so I think we, should, we need to be circumspect and, and, and address the problem and, you know, proverbially, you know, use the, the proper instrument instead of a blunt instrument, which may place uh, greater power in the hands of government uh, that, we, that we ultimately regret, right? Because... So let me ask you this then. Um, you, you teach on campus. Yes. How, how do we cultivate, and, and campuses used to be bastions of free speech and press, and I think over time a lot of people think that they, they are not as much anymore committed to freedom of speech and press in this vigorous way that you're talking about. But, and you're talking about both the left and the right, um, for different reasons, having a more skeptical view of a robust understanding of free speech and press. Um, how, in your opinion, how should we cultivate a robust culture of freedom of speech and press? Let's not talk about the law and politics for a minute. Let's talk sure. about the culture of freedom of speech and press. In your view, how do we cultivate a robust but civilized uh, understanding of freedom of speech and press? Well, there's no doubt, uh, you know, the recent polls show that there has been a generational shift and that students today are more receptive to censorship to uh, protect them and to protect others in, in, in the name of, let's say, emotional safety. Say, the, the notion of safety has been expanded to include uh, emotional safety, and that now charges administrators with the task of safeguarding their emotional safety. And one wonders if this actually backfires by making students more anxious um, to answer your question directly, I think, you know, we need to overcome this through both education and example. Um, we need to create, and I think um, uh, Greg Lukianoff uh, wrote a nice uh, article, and he's the head of FIRE, um, which is an organization dedicated to free speech on campus, uh, that talked about establishing a free speech culture at the, high, at the grammar level, at the high school level. And that would include explaining to people why free speech is so important and why some of the costs, the benefits of free speech may outweigh uh, its costs. But it also means um, uh, providing examples. I mean, if, if students see the example of censorship and moral indignation and self-righteousness and, and the canceling of uh, opposing viewpoints, uh, they're, they're going to be reared on this and they're going to, they're going to, um, uh, these, these 
habits will become ingrained and they and we shouldn't be surprised if they practice them too and we increasingly you know shout uh or silence one another uh rather than speaking to one another <laughs> so i i think there's a there's a real concern and uh educators uh leaders in all levels in uh, from the pulpit um uh in politics uh in school on school boards need to both educate and to provide examples um so it's the, the this does not bode well uh when when you have a generation that's much more receptive to censorship that may have forgotten historically that the, you know, marginalized groups in the past, the abolitionist movement, uh, civil rights, women's rights, LGBT, the, the, the sword of free speech was really the, the instrument of their liberation. That needs to be told. Um, and, and, and again, I'm not going to defend the, the indefensible by saying that um, you know, we shouldn't be concerned with uh, safety and equal dignity. I think we can have both. We can have robust free speech and we can have uh, decency and, and civility. But the pendulum, I think, is is swinging uh, against speech. And the courts, ironically, the court, the court's robust uh, protection of free speech has been sidestepped in, in, in so many uh, uh, spheres of our culture and, and, and of our life. Uh, and that's that's a shame. That's an important that's an important reminder, Joe. That um, whatever the law says, it's what culture decides, and that shaping culture is so critical to shaping um, America and and the future of America. Uh, Joe, thank you so much just for taking the time to be with us today to lay out this fascinating history of free speech and press in America and how it applies to today. And I really hope that we can join you in, in embracing this idea of, of, as you put it, speaking to each other, candidly, forthrightly, honestly, publishing our thoughts candidly, forthrightly, and honestly, in the hopes of having real conversation that is a real pursuit of the truth in a, in a robust and open way. That's a, that's a great um, cultural idea and legal idea for us to pursue as a country. And I just thank you for joining us to articulate it. I'm delighted. I hope it was helpful. Thank you so much. And let's all strive to create a, a free street, free speech culture, you know, uh, at home and elsewhere. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash American Idea Pod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AM Idea Podcast. From the SRAM Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickenga.